Do you ever question whether your sacrifice is worth it? Each day we rise and we give ourselves to work and family. We labor to keep our houses clean, our children fed. We read and study God's Word to feed our own soul and in the hopes of being able to feed somebody else's. Uh, we give our money to those who are in need and those to advance the gospel of forgiveness. We bear with and are patient with the wayward and the rebellious. We overlook the neglect of busy friends and fellow church members. We pick up our Bible and our Sunday school material to prepare and teach one more lesson to children and adults alike. We visit the sick and the hurting. Some who we visit will forget our, um, our time as soon as we leave. We spend hours praying for relief and reconciliation that is yet to come. We continue to fight that sin that continues to control us. And do you ever just question, is it worth it? The life of a Christian is a life of sacrifice. We are called to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Christ. The world hated Jesus, and likewise it will hate us. We are called to speak the truth in love, knowing that it will marginalize us. We're called to sacrifice our time, our money, our, our pride for the glory of, of Christ. And we will face persecution. And beloved, we will tire and grow weary. And we may be tempted to ask that question, is it worth it? There will be days when that question uh, may be harder to answer. But I pray that when that day comes, it will be abundantly clear from our text this morning, but it is indeed worth it. Living for Christ is always worth it. We want to look at this chapter this morning in really three headings. The first is the, the redeemed. The redeemed. Revelation 14 should be a welcome reminder that all of our labors, all of our sacrifices for the Lord Jesus Christ will be worth it. We must not believe in the lie or fall to discouragement that darkens our hope of the coming resurrection. One day, we will experience perfection in the presence of God. One day, we will know that all our efforts, believe me, all our efforts for King Jesus will be worth it. Look with me again in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. The Lamb really is a key figure of Christ throughout the book of Revelation. And with the Lamb was 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now this is the second time where John specifically mentions 144,000. The first is Revelation 7. Uh, when I preached through that section, I gave six reasons why I believe that this 144,000 is a reference to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to go over all those uh, again, but I will say this, that I believe that 144,000 is representative 
of all the church. The twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes, uh, the twelve apostles, twelve times twelve, 144, times uh, 1,000, 144,000. I think it's a representative of all believers of all time. John makes the same to twelve tribes and the twelve apostles, and later on describing the gates of the gates and walls of Jerusalem. So these 144,000 are with the Lamb, and the name of God and the name of the Lamb is written on their foreheads. And in contrast to the rest of the earth, if you remember the last several weeks, you have the name of the beast, the mark of the beast on themselves. John says here that these 144,000 are the redeemed. They're redeemed from the earth and redeemed from mankind. They're the redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And they and they alone are able to sing the song of redemption. They can learn this song because they are redeemed. Not everyone can learn that song. So what hinders people from learning the song of redemption? I think one reason is that people cannot learn the song because they do not believe they need redemption. I think one of the challenges of our day is that people think that they're fine without God. Now, I think many people would admit that, hey, I'm not perfect. I've done bad things. Uh, but even though I'm not perfect, I'm really not that bad. There's a hidden scale in, that most people have that kind of helps pacify our, our consciences, helping us to believe that because we have not committed those horrible sins that we are safe from God's justice. I believe another reason is that people cannot learn the song of redemption because they love their sin more than they love God. Sin is deceptive. It's alluring. It promises happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment, but it only leaves you empty and gives you regret. Many people are slaves to their own passions. Now, of course, they don't bow down to the gods of, of money and sex as an idol in their, in their house, but they, they, they live their lives controlled or consumed by those desires. So as, at the outset of this message, do you see your own need for redemption? Are you controlled by your desires? The Bible is clear that every human being needs redemption because every human being is a sinner. We have wronged and rebelled against God. And God is holy. And because he's holy, we deserve punishment. And only here, those who, who follow the Lamb can learn that redemption song. It is not by their own merit they come to Christ, but by recognizing their sin and the merit or the worth of the Lamb. Faith in the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our only hope for salvation. Only Christ saves. Now, I think there's two marks of how you can tell whether or not you truly are a follower of Christ in this passage. It says that this 144,000, this representation of the church, have not defiled themselves with women. They are our virgins. Now, I think John is probably not referring to a literal uh, virginity here or celibacy, although the church highlighted celibacy in, in the early days. Uh, but it also valued uh, sexual relationships in the confines of, of marriage. But I think what he's trying to point out here is that this, these 144,000 have not defiled the name of Christ. They have kept their relationship pure with him. Oftentimes in the scripture, this idea of, of adultery or fornication is looked in, in spiritual terms. And we have uh, walked away from our husband, the bridegroom, Christ. 
So in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2 and 3, it says this. Paul writes, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the servant deceived Eve by his cunning thoughts, will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Well, I think what John is saying here is that this 144,000 have not walked away from Christ. They're not perfect, as we'll see, but they, they have fa- fast to Christ. They didn't abandon him by following the beast, as we saw in the last chapter. Remember, this, this, this section right here in the middle of Revelation, chapter 12 through 14, is a battle between the Lamb and the beast, God and Satan. Either you are marked by the Lamb, or you are marked by the beast. The church is called to be faithful to Christ as a bride is faithful to her husband. So is your devotion purely focused on Christ? That's one mark of a Christian, is that you give your life to the Lord Jesus. The second mark we see here in the passage is that there's there's no lie found in their mouth. Now, if you're going to be a child of of God or a child of the Lamb or a child of the, the beast... If those are the only two options, well, what is the beast characterized? It's characterized by lies, by accusation, by deception, by twisting and perverting the truth. Christians are known for the truth, for speaking the truth in love. We confess the truth about our sin and our hope in Christ as Savior. We as Christians are not blameless, or we are blameless but not sinless. There's a difference there. Our blame has been swallowed up by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken our blame so that we, those sinners, are pure and holy in the eyes of God. We belong to Christ, and our union, our connection with Him, makes us blameless. So as Christians, we never boast the fact that we are blameless in the sense that we are are perfect in the way we live our lives. But no, we are perfect because we are connected to the perfect One. Christ is blameless, therefore we are blameless. Now, I think these two individual marks are summarized in that, in that sentence right there in the middle where it says, It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's really all Christians are, is we are followers of the Lamb. This is that great passage when He says in Luke chapter 9, He says, We deny ourselves, we pick up our cross, and we follow Jesus. Beloved, where are you following the Lamb? Is there any area in your life where you choose not to follow Him? Friend, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, not a follower of the Lamb, God offers you redemption. But He offers you redemption specifically through the Lamb. If we are sinners, then we need redemption. No amount of good works can erase your sin. Our sin has to be dealt with, has to be paid for. Either you will pay... Or you will allow Christ to pay on your behalf. How good God is to us. That, that we deserve punishment and He gives us grace. So friend, turn from your sin and embrace the payment that Christ has offered with His own life. He delights to save. Follow Him wherever He goes. The next section I want to look at here is this idea of reporting. We see three pronouncements or three reports or uh, um, announcements of three angels. There's an announcement of hope for the redeemed and woe for the worshippers of the beast. 
Look at Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. And another angel, a third, followed and sang with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest. Day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its images and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So that opening question, is your labor, is your sacrifice worth it? I think these angels proclaim an emphatic yes, your sacrifice for Christ is worth it. The, the, the whole section here is, is really an idea of judgment and woe towards unbelievers. It says that this first angel proclaims an eternal gospel to every tribe and people and language and nation. It's, 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 it's spoken to those who dwell on the earth, those who have yet come to know Christ. It's, it's the close of history, the harvest time is coming, and God is giving one last chance for people to repent. This eternal gospel, the one that was, that was ordained before the foundation of the world, the one that will be here after this world ends. God, in His kindness and in His graciousness, is extending this call to the rebellious one last time. This message of grace and hope also comes with wrath and judgment. That's really what this section is all about. It's God's wrath, God's judgment. God who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs, is coming to finally put an end to sin. It is comprehensive and it is total. This second angel pronounces a judgment on Babylon. Uh, the representative of the earthly city in, in John's day probably reference to Rome. I think we could probably make the extension into the, the city of man, the secular age. The, the nations are drinking the wine of the passion for sexual immorality. I think probably in the previous section, John is drawing on the imagery of sexual immorality to communicate a spiritual adultery of the nations that stand against God. You're either for God or you're against God. The earthly city encourages those to love the world over God, self over Christ. This great city will fall like all the other great cities, like Babylon, like Nineveh, like Rome, all who seemed invincible for a time, until God showed that they weren't. The city of man and its secular, adulterous ideals will one day fall. Judgment is coming. I think this 
third angel and his pronouncement is, is, is one that we should stop and slow down. And this is probably not something that we are going to um, rejoice in, in our human minds. The third angel brings a terrifying word for those who follow the beast. All who have rejected the lamb who was slain will be slain eternally. All who deny that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross will drink the cup themselves. God's holy and ferocious anger will be delivered against the people of this world. And we shouldn't just rush by this. The greatest motivation, I think, for us to come to Christ is His grace. It's how much God has loved us, how much He's poured out lavishly, lavished His grace upon us that should draw us to Christ. But just because that, I think, is the greatest motivation, that doesn't mean that is the only motivation. Avoiding God's wrath against your sin is another motivation. Hell is real and horrible. Listen to this pronouncement of the angel. Let it sink in. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured first strength into a cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever receives the mark, on its name. So very clearly, if you reject God, you will drink His wrath. He will pour out the full anger of His wrath against you and your sin. It's hard to imagine the wrath of God against sinners, or maybe it's just because we don't want to think about it. How would you respond against someone who broke into your house and attempted to abuse and molest your children. God hates sin. God is holy and He will punish sin because He hates it with a holy and a righteous anger. Those who do not bow to Christ will be tormented, the text says, with fire and sulfur. It says the, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Hell will never end. The torment and punishment of hell will never cease. Those who reject God, the text says, will have no rest, day or night. I know many in this congregation uh, deal with chronic pain. Uh, some people that you see every single Sunday, you, you don't know what they're going through, but many of, of those here just have chronic pain. And one of the, 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 those who deal with chronic pain, there's different periods of time where you have maybe a moment of release. 
or maybe you're having an upcoming surgery, and you think maybe this will, will help. It's the expectation that one day I'm going to be released from this pain. Well, hell is the opposite. There will be no release. The punishment that God gives will be eternal, and it will be just. If you reject Jesus, you will face conscious torment for all time. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, what we would want to say to you as Christians is we want you to repent. We want you to experience the forgiveness of Christ. We want you to, to experience the love and the grace and mercy of God. We do not want you to go to hell. It's an awful place. And for the sake of Christ and for your own soul, repent and believe. But I think what this should do in us Christians, it should make you hate your own sin. The things in your life that, 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 you, that dishonor God, it should cause us to, to hate. And it should also make us passionate to share the gospel to those who do not know Christ. Imagine standing at the edge of a pit, and inside that pit is a raging fire. Even standing right there at the edge, you can feel the, the heat coming up, starting to maybe burn your skin a little bit. Now imagine yourself being pushed and being held over horizontally with those flames. You start to begin to experience the ferocity and the heat of those flames, and knowing you know the only way that you can be saved from those flames is if someone pulls you back. If you are not pulled back, those flames begin to burn and torment you, leaving you in anguish. The heat of the flames show no mercy. Now I can continue to describe graphically the burning of, of flesh, the cries of agony. But friend, listen, no image, no illustration can give justice to the, the full wrath of God against sin and sinners. It is far worse than we could possibly ever imagine. A holy God will execute holy judgment against sin. Now, well, we can't explain away the doctrine of hell. Hell is a real place with real suffering forever. And if we lose the biblical doctrine of hell, we also lose the biblical doctrine of justification. If we lose hell, we lose heaven. If we lose hell, we lose salvation. If we lose hell, we lose the, the full, abundant love of Christ. Jesus experienced hell for us on the cross. He was forsaken by God and experienced separation from the Father and an agony that is far beyond what we can imagine. We can only truly know of the deep love the Father has for us and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself when we recognize the reality of hell. He experienced it for us on the cross. And we bristle at the reality of hell in our day. But rightly understood, it does not minimize God's love, but it maximizes it. One writer, John Lynn, says, The issue is not how God can allow there to be a hell if he's a loving God. The issue is that if Jesus Christ would experience hell for me, then truly he must be a loving God. It is not why would God allow hell. 
But why would God experience hell for me? And yet he did. Beloved, we cannot truly have God's love without the doctrine of hell. God so loved the world because he experienced hell for us. So we want to rejoice in God's real love. Listen to what Romans 5, 9 says. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the promise of Christians. This is what the Thessalonians would, would rejoice in. They, they, they waited for the deliverance from Jesus Christ, the Son, who God raised from the dead from the wrath to come. God gives us a real hope and a real love as He saves us from a real hell. You can just look at the contrast here of those who, who are of the redeemed, the Lamb, and those who are of the beast. Look at 12 and 13 of Revelation 14. This is the, the point, I think, what John is going at. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So if you came this morning and you were, you were tired, you, you didn't want to continue to follow Jesus, you felt weak, this is what John says, endure, endure, endure. Why? Because there's coming a day. Because there's coming a day. He says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. The unrighteous will never have rest, but the righteous will have rest for all time. The righteous who follow Christ will be blessed, and they will have rest from their labors. John just calls us to endure, endure as you follow Christ. Your labors and all that you do for the Lord Jesus Christ will be worth it. Do not give up and you will reap a harvest. Trust in the, the eternal gospel of salvation. Do not turn back to the things of this world. Say no to your lust. Say no to your greed. Say no to your pride. It is not worth it. It will leave you empty and full of pain and regret. And if you continue to follow your sin, and you follow your sin to the point of death, and wallow in it, there is no promise for you on the next life. When you die and you are resurrected and you face God, there will be no hope for you. But if you have Christ, if you believe in Christ, that Christ died for you and rose for you, and is studied for you and will come again for you, you will have rest. Hell is real, but so is heaven. Where will you go? It's so simple. Do you know Christ? Christ showed you his love by taking hell for you on the cross. Accept his gift and live. Reject it and die. And church, let us not be so quick to move away from this. I think if we have been gripped by the reality of the coming judgment, I think we'll have a lot more boldness to share our faith. I think one of the reasons why Christians don't talk about God, they don't talk about Christ, they don't talk about salvation, is because they don't want to talk about hell. We haven't been gripped by the eternal realities of our lives. All history is headed toward that day. Let us be ready. Let's prepare others to be ready. 
as we close, last section, this idea of the reaping. We saw this exactly, the, the, the promise that Jesus said during his earthly life in Matthew 13. This is the reality of it coming to fruition at the end of history. The great end time harvest, when God will gather the righteous for eternal blessings and the, he will gather the unrighteous for eternal torment. The wheat and the chaff. Verse 14. When I looked and behold a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat down on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one with the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung its sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it to the great wine press of the wrath of God. The wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. As much as we don't want to talk about it, as much as we may not even want to think about it, the harvest is coming. Beloved, endure. Endure to the end. Hold fast to Christ. And let us help bring in as many as we possibly can into that harvest. We do that by proclaiming the good news of the gospel of forgiveness and living a, a holy life that people would see our good deeds and give glory to God on the day of visitation. So if you're here and you are a believer, I pray that you would endure steadfast, living for the day when God will call us home. And friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you've not bowed to Christ, I just plead with you, do it today. Your passions and your desires, your possessions, they will not save you when the end time harvest comes. We all will face the harvest. The question for us all is what kind of harvest will it be? Will our harvest be for eternal life or eternal death? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God that is gracious, that is kind, even in the midst of hard words. God, even in your wrath, God, we know that you are just and good. Father, I pray that we would be reminded of how much you have saved us from, that you have saved us from an eternal hell through Christ so that we get to experience pleasures forevermore at your right hand for all time. God, I pray that those here who are wayward, those here who who do not yet know you. God, I pray that you would press upon their heart by the power of your Holy Spirit to come to you, that they too would experience the, the rest that comes with those who know you. Father, we pray that we would all follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.